<laughs> so, uh, yeah, welcome back to the Antifada uh, after a couple weeks break. We are back, episode 30. Is it? I think it's 31, isn't it? I don't know. Are you counting Wob Damn America as 30? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a good This that's is a good proper Antifada episode 30. There you go. And Jamie and Sean are back from the new socialist worker state of Mexico. <laughs> uh, and we're going to hear about their their uh, in major summit. Well, I tell you, um, you read all these historical ca- accounts of uh, social revolutions uh, throughout history. But um, with the um, inauguration of the Mexican workers' state, um, it was really an honor to see that uh, revolution in process. Um, it got a little violent at times. Um, it, there was a lot of expropriations, a lot of street battles. Uh, but uh, I think we won this one, folks. So between the Corbin and AMLO access, axis and uh, uh, an impending Bernie Sanders presidency, we might be halfway to, I don't know, not full communism, but like full socialism. Perhaps. Certainly partial communism Par- partial. in our time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so um, it's really good to be back. Um, I, speaking for myself, and I believe Jamie as well, um, we love Mexico. Uh, it is an amazing place. Andy, you've uh, spent some time there yourself, right? Yeah, I've been a couple of. I, and I, you're going back, right? Yeah, I'm going. I'm going in January. Um, I guess you already tried to find Mexican listeners and probably didn't work out. Oh no, we totally did. <laughs> oh, you we did? did, yeah. Who are you gonna shout out? Um, we're going to keep them, them anonymous because okay. they were part of the uh, revolutionary struggle and uh, they have to be protected. But they listen to this show? Yeah. What? Yeah. yeah. There are people involved in the revolutionary struggle listening to this show? Yeah, always. Okay. Every revolutionary struggle. I mean, we, like, <laughs> La Chica Aranya went to meet with AMLO and Corbin as the delegated um, Antifa representative from the United States, from si. sent from the headquarters. Es verdad. Uh, so you think it's possible that we wouldn't be involved in the insurrection? I mean, it's... That, that's now just... I'm wondering who else, like, is Maduro sitting back with a cigar listening to... <laughs> Listening to the Wob Damn America episode? Mm. I I love that idea. Uh, Jake, um, if that's happening, I'm very proud of you, my friend. (laughs) So uh, what do you you dig about uh, Mexico, Andy? Like Historically, it's such a departure from what we have here, and it really helped me understand and appreciate this land that I live in because when I went to high school, I was told that, you know, there were these people called Indians, and they were... You know, they, they lived in peace with nature and lived in teepees and were nomadic. And uh, they're all dead now, which is wrong that we did that. But now they're gone. And now this land is ours. And uh, and you go to Mexico and you realize that is not the story. Um, there was a, ma- a huge civilization here, large populations of people. And in Latin America, these people were mixed and found these mestizo nation states and here it, they were more or less wiped out. And uh, you see the, the remnants of indigenous culture everywhere in Mexico, uh, whereas here, you know, it exists, but we just kind of don't know about it. Like we don't know what food we're eating is with indigenous roots or whatever. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that before. I mean, the, all the white people who claim uh, Native American ancestry notwithstanding, um, they really have a lot more of a synthesis of cultures in Mexico. Oh, yeah. On a brief side note, I'm reading a Kim Stanley Robinson book that's an alternate history. And uh, in that history, um, all the Christian civilizations wiped out in the plague. Uh, and basically the only people left are the Chinese and like basically the Islamic uh, civilization and the Native Americans. And spoiler alert, the Native American tribes, uh, the Iroquois nation is actually like 
instrumental in this book uh, because they had some, you know, real democratic tendencies uh, back in the new world, quote unquote. Uh, they're actually able to push forward like a liberatory movement because they weren't destroyed mm. by, in imperialism. So it's an interesting alternate history. And I think it does show like, you know, like you said, Andy, that um, it's it's a history that we've lost because um Unfortunately, uh, a lot of those folks didn't make it, and the Native Americans who are here are put in a reservation system uh, that uh, keeps them separated and segregated from the rest of us. Whereas, as we saw, and we'll talk about in Chiapas and elsewhere, um, in, the indigenous culture is, in a sense, more prevalent and hegemonic even in many places than uh, the criollo or the, you know, the um, uh, Spanish um, Castilian sort of uh, culture. Yeah, I mean, speaking for myself, I certainly have political reasons for liking Mexico, especially the southern part of Mexico, where the indigenous cultures are very collective minded and some of them very resistance minded, as we're going to get into in a minute. But uh, I'm not going to lie. It's also just like really fucking fun and chill there. <laughs> like uh, there's th different cultures in different parts of Mexico, but um, Mexico City is a really fun place to oh, visit. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I could actually have a pretty good life there if we ever decide to uh, hit the eject button on <laughs> uh, the United <laughs> Snakes of America. <laughs> but uh, we got some friends down there who are super cool. It's similar to New York in many ways, it, but also it really different. Is, yeah. It's a very uh, uh, cosmopolitan city and um, really a really vibrant city, you know, with there's a lot of different districts and a lot of different things going on. It's a humongous city. Um, it's like three times the size of New York, right? Yeah, 25 million. It's way bigger than New York. Or something like that. But uh, also in like like much like New York, it's a big city and a small town, you know? Yeah. Like every time I go there, by the end, I'm running into people that I met at the beginning and people kind of identify with their neighborhoods in a similar way to New York and... So it's it, it's nice. It's cozy. It's it's at the same time exciting, but also somehow tranquilo. Yeah. And I think that and again, we're going to get into this. Um, it's very, very different when you're a tourist, you know, going to a different country, even if it's just directly south of us for 10 days than it is to be obviously somebody who grew up and lives there. Uh, we saw the parts of uh, Mexico City that were, I don't know, gringo friendly and had a tourism infrastructure. But uh, if you take the buses or you take um, transport uh, outside of the city, you see very quickly that Mexico City, just like New York and all other cities uh, in the entire capitalist world, has a very intense uh, inequality problem, you could say. You know, there's a small ruling class that tends to be very light skinned, not always, but often. And then a, just a vast um, impoverished working class that uh, does the work uh, and is exploited. And um, they're all in this one big city. Yeah. And it's also a, like a racialized hierarchy as well. Like I think Americans, I, I keep saying, God, it's so chauvinist of me to say American. North there's, Americans. There's yeah. more than one. Well, Mexico is part of North America. Uh, you know, people from the U.S., I think, sometimes have this vision of like Mexico as this uh, sort of monolithic place. And all Mexicans are just like Mexican, like they're Hispanic. That's like a race that they think is real. But there are many different layers within that and the ruling class does tend to be very light-skinned like you know spanish conquerors um tried not to mix too much with the indigenous people most mexicans are a mixture of uh spanish and uh indigenous and then the underclass is very heavily indigenous definitely 
I want to ask you about one Mexico City resident who lived on the outskirts of Mexico at that time, uh, and his house is now a major tourist attraction. Uh, I'm talking about the Casa de Trotsky, which is uh, what I visited, and I really liked it because if you like Trotsky, if you don't like Trotsky, it is a it's been left exactly the same way as the moment he was killed. And the tour is basically about how he was killed more than anything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's, in, it's in Coyacan, right? Which uh, you said yeah. the outskirts. It's right there. by the Casa de Frida Kahlo, the Casa Azul. The, At the time, it was the outskirts. Right. I was going to say, like, Mexico City, this, like, massive urbanization you saw uh, in, like, the in, from the 30s to the 70s uh, turned what was, like, a suburb, essentially, into, like, a main part of the city. But, yes, uh, you were saying it was right next to Frida Kahlo's house. That's nice that they lived close to each other. Were they friends? I believe they might have been more than friends even. And, uh, you know, immature person that I was, I took a picture of uh, one of the many pictures of them standing near each other. And I posted it in my Instagram stories and I said, get it, girl. I'm so mature. Also, super fucking weird to see the room where he was killed with all of his stuff in it still Mm, and like all of his books and his clothes and uh, Sean and I actually took a, the opportunity to... His t- skeleton to take, is like, there. <laughs> yeah, nice super weird. Take a smiling tourist picture in, right in front of the spot where he got the ice pick to his skeleton. For all our trot comrades out there. No, no. I'm just kidding. I, I, I took, didn't even make it. I was too hungover. <laughs> <laughs> I, I took a very, uh, very respectful picture. I don't, I don't go to Trotsky's house. I, I, I took that a sectarian. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I took a very respectful picture of the toilet where he used to take shits while probably reading some incomprehensible texts and uh, or writing them. I, perhaps, perhaps. I mean, I've done work on the toilet, so you know, no shade. That's actually not fair. You can say a lot of things about Trotsky, but he was an excellent writer. He was not, not a shit poster. He was not a shit poster. He he was. Both good with language. Only and also in the literal with, sense. Theoretically, he was also, uh, say what you want about him, but he was a deep thinker. Yeah, he was like the Jack yeah. Handy of, uh, you know, the 19. Not so good with security culture, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Somebody go back in time and teach him some infosec. Well, it was cool because you got to see pictures of all the different places that he lived in the world until he had to leave them. And uh, I think it, it was a very simple house. It was a nice house. It wasn't that big, but it was pretty cool. Um, to see all the rooms where he would live his life. He you wasn't know, balling. It wasn't like MTV Cribs. Uh, no, it wasn't Leon super Trotsky. fancy. It was it was pretty small and simple, um, but it had beautiful gardens and grounds. And uh, I saw some fun. Uh, there was actually some video of Trotsky uh, feeding the chickens Aww. and like cleaning the cages and stuff because uh, supposedly he liked to do the farm chores. It like cleared his head or whatever. Good job, Bronstein. And when I was there, I asked uh, the tour guide... Um, if it was true that some anarchists one night stole uh, his remains and baked them into cookies. And the uh, tour guide looked at me like (laughs) I was crazy and said, no, that isn't true. And um, she's like, the the remains are right here behind this locked door that was locked with a very small padlock. Mm, Right, okay. Uh, (laughs) uh, And you were like, sure, honey. Keep telling yourself that. Well, I I don't know what to think. I mean, there is a blog post that alleges they stole those remains and baked them into cookies and sent them to uh, reporters all around the world with a communique. Um, I don't know what it was about. It was some anarchist shit, but... uh, We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, put it in the show notes. It's quite the communique. Indeed. So maybe his uh, remains are still there behind that little padlock, or maybe they are in the stomachs of uh, 
journalists across the world. Right yeah, now. it's possible the person who opens up in the morning was just like, ooh, <laughs> just like <laughs> replaced young. it with some cigarette ashes. <laughs> the world may never know. Oh, All right, so let's what leave else did we do Mexico in Mexico City? City. Oh, one more thing. Okay. We went to Mercado. We had a very witchy day one day. We went to Mercado Sonora which is a big market where you can buy all kinds of shit. Um, and our friend, our good friend Debbie, our witch friend, had requested some particular witch potions that you can only get at Mercado Sonora. Uh, real quick for folks uh, who don't live in Brooklyn or New York City in general, um, it's very common to have witch friends here. That's all. Just go. It's true. Yeah. The, the witch community is very much assimilated they, part of New York hacks, City. They uh, hack Supreme Court justices. You know, they do all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So we went to the Mercado. We, we thought it would be a fun scavenger hunt. We found the witch potions actually very quickly, along with this special tarot deck that she had requested that you can only get there. Witches have so many needs. <laughs> they have they have a lot of needs. Uh, judging from the witches that I know anyway, uh, we saw, but okay, after we bought the witch stuff and we were just like trying to get out, we saw some very sad animals and it, it made oh, me very yeah. sad. The animal market is rough. Like oh, yeah. we, we had had dinner with our friend, a showery, shout out to a showery. Was He's it like, po super was it like cool. pollo, uh, le uh, in vivo? In vivo or what? It was like everything. Everything in vivo. In vivo. <laughs> oh my God. And like, remember the night before we were having dinner with a showery and his friend Miranda and she's like, oh yeah, I don't go to Mercado Sonora. The animals make me sad. Aww. And we're like, whatever. No, th there were like puppies and kittens and little pigs and like fucking everything you could possibly feel oh, bad yeah. for and we're like yeah, yeah well that's a bummer and apparently there, there's a part of the market where you can buy like animals that absolutely you should not be selling like <laughs> endangered species oh man tigers so i met a guy who, who has an axiotl in his apartment which oh, like man. really you should not be having that as a pet <laughs> it's a very special animal that's not doing too well <laughs> oh man in addition to that uh we did a lot of eating a lot of drinking so a lot many of chilaquiles uh, hang out with our uh we could talk about chilaquiles for the rest of the episode the three of us but we will not i will only say that it was both both my first and last meal and probably about half of the meals i had in mexico mm -hmm. it's yeah. drank a lot of mezcal we went to the golf oh, club too much we hung out oh. with los tarquetos who See. are mi gente <laughs> we failed to go to patrick miller which is a cool ass disco club it's only but, open on fridays but apparently to, but to end out the mexico uh, city portion of our trip uh, our friend, a showery was like, oh, we're going to go to dive bars tonight. So he's taking us from like little like Mexican dive bar to another. I'm not talking like New York City, like punk dive bar. I'm talking like where just like regular ass like Mexicans go to get cheap mezcal and drinks and shit. And the place ended up being like right under the uh, apartment we were staying at, which was convenient. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking around the place and everybody is like really big. And a lot of them have the Mexican flag, you know, on their clothing and shit like that. And I asked a showery, I was like, are we in a cop bar? <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a total cop bar. Like, like, it was us and a bunch of cops doing karaoke. <laughs> and a showery told me, which is very awkward uh, when I found out. But um, yeah, fucking a showery told me that like they just passed an ordinance that said that cops can't drink on duty in Mexico City. Uh, but it's like, like not working. Well, right? <laughs> were just these like cops hammered cops must not have been everywhere. on duty then or because uh, they would yeah. never break the rules. Yeah. They, they were all like passed out at their so tables. Like, I hope they were on duty because honestly, if you're going to be a cop, I think the best way to do it is just to like get drunk and pass out. You uh, know, I, I was going to say, like, if you're a cop uh, in the U.S., Mexico or elsewhere, the rule should be you can either have no drinks or you have to down like a half a pint mm -hmm. at least or a pint really, of like, hard uh, liquor. It really knew 
neutralizes them. Yeah. I gotta say, yeah. I was not threatened at all by those yeah, cuffs. They talk about neutralizing tactics. Uh, <laughs> let's just get them drunk. Oh, and we learned about the um, God. What's his name? That singer that everybody loves. Who? You know, the gender bending gay Mexican Elvis. Uh, tell us about him. Well, if if we don't know the name of him, let's just move on. Wait, to wait, wait. It's in my Instagram. It's in my Instagram. Hold on, yeah. hold on. We got to get out of Mexico. I know, so. I know. Really quick. Yeah. Do you think that Mexicans watch Bad Lieutenant and say, "What's what? What's the point of this movie? Is this a normal <laughs> cop, normal <laughs> lieutenant?" Perhaps uh, they do. Oh, Juan Gabriel. His name's Juan Gabriel. He's like the gender fluid Elvis of Latinx culture. Hell yeah. Shout out to Juan Gabriel. One last thing is we did go to a Lucha Libre ma match and it was lit as fuck. We did get masks and I have a uh, now a new character of mine to match La Chica Aranya, which is the Red Scare. Oh, mm. mi esposo. See, now we can share everything. But um, we had uh, a really great time in Mexico City. Again, a great fucking place. We're going to go back more and more. We figured out from our friend what the number, you know, the, uh, the monetary value it would take in order for us to move there and live there relatively comfortably. Yeah, that'll be so, our next um, uh, patron goal. Yeah, our next patron goal might be able to, you know, I'll shelve my union book and uh, all three of us go live in Mexico City. But we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get should there. We, yeah, should we plug the Patreon now? Make the yeah. Patreon announcement? Oh, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's do that let's shit. Let's do it. Who wants to do it, Jamie? Or I think Andy knows best what we got going that on. That is though. true. Yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, I wrote it down here. Yeah, speaking of the Patreon, we have a big announcement for big a 30th episode. Uh, we have we are uh, rising the ranks in the Patreon charts. We are in the mid 200s. We want to get in the mid 100s, uh, and that'll help us keep the show going. Have a lot of we have a lot of really good ideas for content coming up in the next year. So we are hoping to get um, the arbitrarily chosen number. <laughs> of 666 subscribers oh jamie by may 1st may 1st is that is that may day uh the the may day wow we are fla, gonna, fla. we're gonna have something to celebrate this year hell yeah may day gigante <laughs> um or by early march is fine the one year anniversary of the show hell also yeah. my um, birthday and to entice our listeners who have not signed up yet uh everyone at our five dollar tier We'll get two Antifada stickers printed by our comrades at the collectively owned print shop Radix Media in association with the Teamsters at GCC Local One. Oh, yeah. So you can let people know about your favorite communist podcast and support the local uh, graphic workers and collectively run print shops in the process. Yeah. And it's gonna, it's gonna look really cool, uh, but if you live in a deep red state, uh, you might not want to put it on the back of your car because uh, yeah, you might get shot. But, yeah, uh, put a blue lives matter sticker on the back of your car. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I think we might be opening up some more of those two dollar a month uh, subscriptions. Are we not? Yeah, those went fast. We might be doing. Yeah, we that might time. be uh, giving some more of those out. Yeah, and one last thing about supporting our show. We don't make a huge deal about it, but um, we are a uh, cooperative, um, the three of us. And uh, it's important to us that the stickers are made union because we don't believe in lifestyle politics when it comes to consumption, but certainly when it comes to production of, say, podcasts or stickers and the distribution of them, uh, we do like to live our principles. And as somebody who comes from a long line of printers, union, rank-and-file members, it's very important to me that that still exists. And so by supporting us, you're also supporting the union printers over at Radix Media. Dead ass. So speaking of that, we are drinking some coffee right now that comes from 
the Caracols of Zapatista Autonomous Territory in San Cristobal, in Chiapas. Yes, uh, yes. We so still, yeah. so tell, tell us about oh, man. Uh, San Cristobal and your adventure it through was the, so cool. the Humbla. Well, now, maybe the most adventurous thing we did was yeah. actually getting there. Oh, so, my God. Uh, Jamie is really good at planning trips, and she got all the flights set up and all the rooms and shit, you know, figure the whole thing out. We had a flight that was uh, supposed to go from Tuxla. We were supposed to change at Tuxla uh, and then take a little jump over to Palenque. Long story short, Calafia Airlines, fuck you. Fuck you, you, Wiz Khalifa. (laughs) You have the worst airline I have ever tried to take. They fucking completely ghosted on us. There was nobody there. The flight, we only found out the flight was canceled like 10 minutes before. Yeah, after Neural hit them up on WhatsApp. (laughs) They're like, like, we're sorry, your flight is canceled. Oh yeah, your flight, it's canceled. (laughs) Sorry. So now we're like fucking, I don't know, 100 miles. No, they didn't say sorry. No, they didn't say sorry. We're like 100 miles from San Cristobal. We wanted to go to Palenque. We're like, fuck it. So we were like, you know, we're, we're pretty good travelers. So we just got our shit together. And we're like, we'll rent a car and we'll drive to San it, Cristobal. It, it definitely helps that uh, Neural can just throw his credit card down whenever <laughs> yeah. we have a situation that folks, requires it. Folks, if you're going to travel, travel with a uh, socialist lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So Neural um, threw money down, uh, threw money at the problem as uh you know, he's inclined to do. And uh, we got a rental car. So, Jamie, what did you ask the... I was... Okay, he brought me with him to the rental counter to, like, communicate with the ladies in Spanish. And I actually asked, like, which car is the best for these hills that you have in Chiapas? And they're like, oh, this one, this one. And they pointed at this SUV. I was like, can this car climb the mountains? (laughs) And they told me very clearly, yes, it can. So I was like, all right, great. We'll get that one. Yeah. (laughs) Which... uh, you know, seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, we got this Jeep. So we all jump in and uh, we're driving down this highway. The sun sets. Uh, it's not a particularly dangerous part of Chiapas. There are very dangerous parts of it. But uh, we're driving up and up and up and up this mountain down this yeah, highway. And, and Nero was kind of flooring it. He was flooring it. I mean, he was putting that uh, that truck under a little pressure. So long story short, like at maybe about, what would you say, babe? Like 40 minutes into we were, an hour drive. Yeah. We uh, all of a we sudden. We had just been doing like a tasting of all the weird Mexican snacks that Sean bought at the gas station, laughing it up, yeah, having a great time. We were like, oh, wow, we really got through that canceled flight thing. And now, you know, we're home free to go, you know, to San Cristobal and yeah. then have all sorts of uh, fun in Chiapas. Psych. Psych. Uh, literally the fucking engine block of this car set on fire <laughs> <laughs> from trying to climb the mountain. So the woman lied at us. And uh, now it's. Slide right to our faces. (laughs) So the car is on fire. I mean, it didn't actually burn, but it was like smoking everywhere. Um, Was there no driver at the wheel? Did you look into your wallet and it was full of blood? <laughs> <laughs> Neural, uh, you know, did everything he could to try to make a car that was on fire start, but it didn't work. So now here we are, like five fucking gringos uh, stranded on a highway, pretty desolate highway, too, in the mountains of Chiapas uh, with no vehicle and also no cell phone service. Of course not. And so we did something that is sometimes advisable. Sometimes I don't, I don't have any like general rule with this, but we like in a horror movie decided to split up. <laughs> we, did. we did do that. I mean, and everything worked out great, folks. Uh, never listen to the lessons from horror movies. They're telling you lies to keep you from having fun. So well, the, you didn't sneak off and have sex in the jungle. <laughs> that was really what you're not supposed that, to do. That was the only thing that kept us uh, alive. Yeah, Jamie, um, you you stayed with the car. Well, so, we right, need, so. yeah, we needed one Spanish speaker to stay with the car and one Spanish speaker to go for help. So Jamie volunteered to stay with the car as like they were hoping to flag somebody down that like wasn't going to kill them. 
Um, I'm not saying that because it's Mexico. I'm just saying in general, like hitchhiking. You can't trust people. You can't trust people. people. Some tourists have disappeared in Mexico. Yeah, I, that's that's fair to say. Uh, whereas uh, me and uh, I'm the other Spanish speaker. So me and my uh, buddy um, BJ decided to start hoofing it. <laughs> so there's like you have to imagine this isn't like a interstate highway in the United States. There's no streetlights. Uh, there's no shoulder. Very dark. And, Very uh, dangerous. In fact, the barrier on one side is just like a cliff it's of like cliff. 200 feet uh we start walking and um we look and we see to the left of us and this will be important later on a uh, bunch of trucks and people setting up tents uh with a bunch of sleeping bags and some banners that say in spanish displaced people we're like this is really strange but we see a bunch of cops there so we're like all right we'll talk to the police so me and bj you know we try to talk to the local police and um the guy basically said like i'm too busy i can't deal with your shit like i can't help you um we'll get back to that later on uh, but then we just kept walking and walking. We ended up at this like tire shop and the guy was going to charge us like a ton of money to only get like the two of us back into town. Basically, we walked. I, what, what did we was it, like four miles? Uh, Jay, boy, Jamie and I walked, we walked several miles. Yeah. yeah. At one point, these kids on a uh, motorbike pulled over uh, and like waited for us to come up. Um, and we thought we were going to get rolled. So uh, I handed a uh, giant rock to bj and i grabbed a rock myself and uh we got ready to throw down but that didn't happen long story short is on jamie's end what ends up happening well meanwhile back at the vehicle uh we tried to flag down some people nobody wanted to stop for us um eventually we saw a federale who had stopped a guy a little bit across across the highway and down it so like Nero and i ran across the highway and we talked to the cop we asked the cop for help not to uh, ruin our brand or anything, but... Uh, <laughs> he was a drunk cop, so We were right. desperate, folks. Uh, and he was very nice. He said he was going to go radio for a guru for us. And he said to get in the car and lock the doors because it was dangerous. Mm, yeah. So we're like, all right, cool. We'll do that. And then I was, I was like, is it really dangerous? He's like, yes, yes. I'm like, all right, fine. It seems <laughs> fine to me, but what do I know? So he radioed and then he came back. <clears throat> I think he actually had second thoughts and he came back and he stayed with us mm. to wait. So maybe we were, uh, there's a little bit more danger than we perhaps thought. Well, no, no, was. we got, okay. We got vastly different uh, estimates of the danger from different people that we yeah. talked to. So I think maybe the cop was just, you know, he was a little bit like my mom, you well, know, he well, was a little overprotective. You don't want gringos dying on your watch yeah, uh, that's true. or, that's or getting uh, robbed yeah. or whatever. So, so then um, the, the guru came. And we rode in the cab of the tow truck and he towed our car. We apparently passed boy Jamie and Sean <laughs> by the side of the road, but it was so dark that we didn't see them. Yeah. So we're like, oh, they must have found a ride or no, something. No, I don't no, know. No. So We walked for <laughs> two and a half hours up a mountain um, on the other side of the barrier when we could, which was like a cliff drop to the right of us. And then uh, cars speeding by 80 miles per hour, like almost hitting us. We turned the light of the phone on so that we wouldn't like get killed. Sometimes we had to run across the highway, like through traffic to try to get to the other side, just to find a place to walk. There was like nothing around anywhere. And we were just like, basically the only thing that kept us going was that I had brought a six pack that we had bought uh, at the gas station. So we were just drank <laughs> beers and uh, walked down the highway, like weird, weird ass fucking psychos. And um, we actually, everybody, everybody uh, kept, uh, kept their cool. Yeah. Me and BJ were just yeah. walking Shout six out miles. Shout out to just... boy Jamie, Nero, 
Kagan, Sean, and myself for keeping it cool. And eventually, eventually we get cell service. Nero calls and says, we're coming to get you. Yeah, so yeah. We, had, we could see oh. the city in the, in the distance. And uh, finally, fucking the troops came and uh, uh, the cavalry oh, but wait, arrived. But wait, so we were riding in the cab of the tow truck. And I told him what was I told the driver what was going on and that you guys were walking and I asked if it was dangerous there and he was like no not really oh, okay. maybe may, not at this hour maybe at like one or two in the morning uh, but even then like only a little bit okay and I was like all right fine so maybe the cop is just like my mom and the tow truck driver is just like a regular person who knows I, I know this is very gringo but <laughs> when the tow truck picked us up and me and BJ like stormed into town on the back of a fucking truck you know the wind you know blowing in our faces like compl- like pretty drunk oh, yeah. we sent the tow time. truck back for them yeah. by the way it was a very triumphant moment and in a very gringo uh um, move I uh, gave them a propina of like many many pesos <laughs> which I think was the right thing to do yeah. like these guys literally saved our asses we had another maybe two hours of walking in like this insanely desolate part of Chiapas uh, which we may or may not have made so that was quite the adventure and wow. again shout out to everybody uh, on that trip uh, who kept their cool and uh, stayed alive and uh, thank you to the only cop that uh, the Antifada supports that federale uh, over mm-hmm. there and uh in Chiapas. Gracias, Federale. If only someone had told you not to rent a car in Chiapas. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, oh, nobody but everybody <laughs> told us that. So mm, whatever. Anyway, so we got to Chiapas. We had a wonderful time in San Cristobal. Uh, probably the coolest experience that we got to have was visiting the autonomous Zapatista community of Oventique. So Oventique is one of a number of autonomous Zapatista communities in the state of Chiapas, which is the poorest state in Mexico. Um, And they had an uprising in 1994 where they actually tried to overthrow the Mexican government. That's the Zapatistas you're talking about, right? Yes, yes. But um, they were not successful, obviously. They retreated into the mountains of Chiapas. And for a while... It was really bad. This was an armed struggle. The government kept sending in the military and killing people and rounding them up. But eventually uh, the government left them alone, largely left them alone, right? Like it's still an ongoing struggle uh, due to a variety of things. But uh, public sentiment was overwhelmingly on the side of the Zapatistas. Um, There's also sort of a fuzzy border between who's a Zapatista and who's not in this region. And there are many additional towns and communities that are very sympathetic to the Zapatistas. Especially the uh, linguistic group, uh, the indigenous group, the Sitsols, right? Sotzil. Sotzil, yeah. Um, it's uh, fascinating because uh, you said that there was um, support in Mexico for their struggle because the context too is um, that uh, they declared essentially this revolution or insurrection uh, and went down from the hills armed and took over San Cristobal and other cities uh, in Chiapas in uh, 1994, the day that the North American Free Trade Agreement went into effect. Yeah, for some reason, they thought that it was going to uh, worsen inequality and destroy their indigenous way of life. And just like in the United States, uh, and I'm sure Canada as well, NAFTA was very controversial in Mexico and for good reason, because the effects have been horrific for a lot of folks. But um yeah, it starts off as an armed insurrection. Uh, they get pushed back. Um, they not only get support from a lot of the Mexican people, but this was the early internet too. So one of the things that Subcomandante Marcos and the rest of the junta 
uh, the leadership um, and um, just the Zapatistas in general were able to do, which is to use the early internet. And Andy, you might even remember this from when you were younger, uh, Jamie, maybe too, um, you know, to get the word out and to gain international solidarity, which isn't everything, but it does mean something when you've got, you know, the eyes of the world on you and you can be sending out information to the rest of the world because it makes it that much harder for the state to just come and massacre you completely. Yeah, I believe there were also some documentaries made full of music by Rage Against the Machine. Yep. Uh, they were probably appeared in some uh, Rage Against the Machine videos. We're, Anything to spread the word, we're, really. We're going to actually, this is just kind of a preamble to a larger uh, episode that we're going to do about uh, the Zapatista struggle, uh, the history of Chiapas in Mexico in general, and then also other uh these sort of liminal autonomous zones that exist with insurgencies in places like the Philippines, uh, Colombia, and elsewhere. Uh, but that's sort of the context of what Oventique was, is that after this, you know, there's still a kind of a low-level, you know, battle between the between capital, which wants the mineral resources there, there's oil there, or uh, it wants the land for cash crops, and uh, the Zapatistas and other indigenous people who are trying to protect themselves, they have these caracols and these autonomous communities that are not open to the public generally, and where uh, we assume they, they are armed and ready to um, defend themselves if it uh, comes to it. Yeah. And, and this is how the, the Zapatista movement started, right? In, in uh, 1994, with the, the, uh, when NAFTA went into effect, they launched this kind of land reclamation in parts of Chiapas, uh, basically because they're going to be displaced to build dams and to and mining projects and they um, were encouraging I mean it was a combination I think of like intellectuals and campesinos and indigenous communities um, seizing villages and towns and trying to drive out the uh, the, you know, globalists, basically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you use that word again. Yeah. Um, again, there's a deep, deep history here that I just started getting into. But um, uh, re rebellion in uh, Chiapas, whether that was against the um, Spanish uh, or whether that was against the Mexican government after it was um, independent or uh, within the Mexican Revolution of the early 20th century. And then up until the 60s and 70s, these sorts of rebellions and revolts uh, have a long history because Chiapas is a place where, A, you have an indigenous population that still has a strong, cohesive uh, cultural and community bonds. Uh, it's also a place that capital is very interested in getting its hands on and has to a large extent, but not completely. Uh, and it's also very isolated from the rest of Mexico. It's very far into the south. They don't have the same infrastructure. Uh, but as Andy pointed out, um, you know, I think I, I read that 50% of the natural gas in Mexico is made, uh, is uh, produced in Chiapas, um, but it is also the poorest state in the entire Yeah, 60% of the coffee, yep, right? Yep, and it's, and uh, most of the electricity from the hydroelectric dams goes out of Chiapas, and a lot of the people there don't have electricity, so they're sending it out. So it's almost like a kind of internal colony of, you know, larger Mexico. So Oventique, which... Um, we decided to go and uh, visit to see ourselves um, is one of these autonomous um, towns. It looks like a compound, but it's a town. Yeah. And um, I believe it's the only one that's open to visitors from the outside. Yeah. The, the women that we were speaking to said that the other, um, the other ones, ones are so not friendly. as friendly. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. I mean, that's totally cool. Um, um, I would only like to add that this history doesn't start in 1994, right? There are 500 years of struggle. In behind it so um we're gonna get into that a little bit more in our next episode that we do on mexico and 
To get to Oventique, you have to take a colectivo from a specific uh, place in the city. It's uh, pretty far off of the main square where most of the colectivos come. In San Cristobal. In San, in San Cristobal, yeah. Um, and we took, uh, I guess it was like sort of a small colectivo, halfway between a taxi and a colectivo van um, with a couple other nice tourists. Uh, one of them was Mexican. And one of them was her boyfriend who was from, I don't know, some European country. No, no, he was, a, he was American. Oh, he's American? Yeah. He looked, he looked they, hella Euro. They both worked on cruise ships, They both actually. worked on a cruise ship. <laughs> yeah. I believe that's where they met. And we drove up through the windy mountain roads to the community of Oventique. It was about, what, 45 minutes outside yeah, of town? Yeah, I'd say so. Would you say? Yeah. Uh, maybe, a, maybe an hour. I don't know. Um, and it's cool. You're like driving through clouds because you're in the mountains. So um, beautiful. And then you go up to the front gate. And, you know, there's a sign that says, like, this is an autonomous zone, no drugs, no alcohol, no weapons, blah, there's blah, blah. There's a black flag with a red star of the Zapatistas flying, obviously, and all sorts of, even outside, like, murals and stuff, you know, talking about, uh, you know, what the community is and the struggle and everything. Dignidad rebelde. See. And uh, you go to the front gate. Um, everyone is masked up to conceal their identity for obvious reasons. and But they're... They're super nice under those masks. Yeah. And, you know, you, you're supposed to bring your passport. I don't think we actually had to show ours. No. But we all told them who we were, where we were from. What we did Our for occupation, yeah. if we were part of any political groups, and why we wanted to come in. So we told them all those things. They wrote them down and went back inside for a pretty long time, probably consulting with the rest of the junta. And the uh, Mexican uh, woman that we made friends with on that trip said that she had tried previously to get in there. And uh, she had actually been turned away. And she thought that part of that was because she's Mexican and they're actually very, um, not paranoid, but they're, they're very much aware that the Mexican government, the state and other actors sends Mexican people into these caracoles, these autonomous communities in order to spy on the Zapatistas and see what they're doing, you know, just for intel. So it's not guaranteed that you go to Oventique and they, they let you in. Yeah. So we were fortunate. So, so we, we sat there for a while and then they came back and they told us we could come in. And a couple of women showed us around. We were not allowed to take any pictures of the people there, but we could take pictures of all the beautiful murals on all the different buildings. It's like Bushwick in there, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was a street art tour of Oventique. And we'll get to the uh, the real kicker when we get to meet the um, the actual junta, like the local yeah. leadership, which was insane. But you know, the you have to understand that the towns that we were going through and that we had seen in Chiapas in general. Um, poverty isn't even a adequate way to describe it. You know, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of schools, uh, in many the lack cases, of basic services, Yeah, you know, running water and electricity is just astounding. Um, but when you go into, um, this, uh, town that the Zapatistas have created and defended, um, there are new buildings that they had built. Um, there were, um, it's very clean and very well put together. So these two women uh, who gave us the tour, they were both indigenous women, and uh, they were showing us all the murals and explaining to us how everything, the, all the production there is done collectively. Uh, they don't interact much with the outside world or trade much with the, uh, with the outside world. It's kind of like an autarky between these different communities yeah. because they want to run things themselves and they want to do it. You know, maybe it's hard to say not like without capitalism, but like they are a libertarian socialist type group. So um, they do run things, uh, production collectively yeah, and distribution. They, they don't use money within their communities. They only use money to trade with the outside world. And actually, 
Uh, this was kind of interesting when we were buying things in their store to bring home to give to people. We tried to give them a donation. We tried to give them extra money and they wouldn't take it. Yeah, that was really interesting. Um, the people were that we spoke with were, um, were just all really nice. And if you didn't know the context of the situation, you just think that it was a pretty well put together you know, town with, with good resources. Now, the real kicker was that... Um, we thought the tour was kind of ending. We saw like this big stage where I guess they have a uh, film screening, like a, fil a film series. Oh, which no, is no, really no. Cool. You're telling it wrong. Oh, no. Go ahead. You, you tell it. Okay. So people want to think about uh, anyone vaguely socialist as like a cult or whatever. And, you know, it, it would be easy to think that everyone's the same in a place like this that's fairly like culturally and ethnically homogenous where everybody is wearing a mask to hide their identity. Uh, the artists don't sign their art, things like that. But um, this is just like one moment that I thought was kind of cute. So there was this big amphitheater down at the bottom of a hill and we asked the ladies doing the tour, oh, what do they have there? Because it looked like it was set up for an event. And they said, oh, uh, we had a film screening night. We had a night of film screenings. And I was like, oh, what films did they show? And they're like, uh, we don't know. We didn't go. <laughs> yeah, and I did. thought that was just like a very human thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, not everyone feels like going to everything <laughs> right. all the time. It, it's not like uh, some sort of like dystopian view of um, socialism where everybody has to sit in front of a screen and, you know, I don't know, Watch do their the, five minute the, hate. Watch the state or, films. Yeah. I would like to know what the film was. Though. Yeah, I, I, I would too. The, it was Spider-Man. <laughs> Speederman. Uh, it was interesting too because one of the women spoke Spanish and the other one um, only, only spoke Sotzeal, uh, which was fascinating. But then the, the real kicker after we saw that was that the women were very insistent that we continue and go to see the school. Um, and you can tell that much of the resources of the village have been put into building this um, very well put together and very, um, I don't know, just for the region, very advanced um, uh, primary and secondary school yeah. for the um, kids. They that told us it goes up through age 15, which is a lot better than most poor towns in Chiapas. I was reading that most, uh, the majority of the population in Chiapas uh, has between a first and a third grade education. So, you know, say what you want about the limits of these sorts of struggles, but um, Oventique as a place where these folks have managed to gain some measure of autonomy mm -hmm. and create things collectively, um, they are putting their resources into something that was lacking, like the ability to teach English and um, Sotzeal, their language to their they students. I, I and think math they study Spanish in Sotzeal. I don't know that they study English. I said English, I meant Spanish. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I went to, when I was in uh, Chiapas, I didn't go to uh, Caracol, but I went to, uh, there's like this tour in San Cristobal that takes you to this indigenous village right outside of town where they have like a really interesting syncretic church and uh, indigenous market. And at this market, they were, you know, the, the uh, local people were selling zapatista handicrafts like little dolls and such and i asked the tour guide uh so the people here they support the zapatistas and he said to be honest these people probably don't even know what the zapatistas are they just know this is a thing that tourists buy mm -hmm. these people are almost all illiterate they don't speak spanish they the <laughs> dialect of their language is only spoken in this town um they all have children when they're very young uh and you know that's so the idea that like all of Chiapas is this Zapatista territory is not true, but also what they were trying to do is get to like generalize the the message of autonomy and, and bring people together yeah. while keeping yeah. their indigenous life intact. Yeah. The, the difference is pretty stark, I think, in terms of the effect that especially globalization has had 
since NAFTA on some of these communities because everything that the Zapatistas warned us about basically have come true. Oh, yeah. Like they had, uh, we had a good interview with somebody Fuck, on even, Majority even Report the Majority Report this the week. Even the AFL CIO was warning, detail. <laughs> warning what was going to happen yeah. under NAFTA. <laughs> yeah, but like in, in uh, Oventique, like all the kids had uniforms, and that struck me as something really crucial because I know a lot of parents have trouble affording uniforms for their kids. But um, I asked them, like, do, do you use money in this town? Everyone gets what they need. It's really a situation of like actually existing libertarian socialism or something close to it. Like, I don't think they identify it that way explicitly, but from each past, according to yeah. his abilities to each according to his needs. It's and a syncretic, I think, a mixture of um, indigenous sort of traditions and then also with a kind of libertarian socialist, um, yeah. you know background you know, from the more intellectual types. yeah and it was really inspiring for me especially to see it as someone who really believes in these principles and is constantly having to argue against people who think it's just human nature to be competitive and hierarchical because it's not like there are so many different ways for humans to be and it so happens that that particular culture meshed very well with more modern ideas about socialism and horizontalism oh you want to talk a little bit about the government babe well, I was going to say um, you were talking about hierarchy. I mean, um, we uh, did actually have the opportunity. Uh, I think it was a, a rare one and it was a pretty amazing one to um, to meet the junta, which is the local council. We're not I'm not sure. We'll have to look into how they're elected and uh, delegated. But uh, it was... oh, I read a little bit about it. Oh, actually. They, There's no they... like set way that they choose the members oh. of the junta de buen gobierno. But um, sometimes people volunteer. Sometimes people uh, nominate other people because they think they'd be good at it. Um, their terms are very short. Uh, a lot of them are limited to just two weeks. And it's an extremely horizontalist cool. structure of governance. So they make all decisions in conjunction with these big community councils that everyone goes to who wants to have a say. Well, that's incredible. I didn't, I didn't even know that. Um, the experience itself like it was a little intimidating i'd say for jamie and i because yeah. we were on this tour and like the two women were like oh the junta wants to meet you i had been talking to some people from the libertarian socialist caucus of the dsa um i'm not super super involved in this caucus right now unfortunately i'm way too busy to take on more shit but i am technically a part of it and i believe in a lot of the things that they're doing so there's this project called symbiosis that uh, a bunch of different groups in the U.S. have signed on to already um, to form sort of a dual power network between all of these different uh, sort of various types of libertarian socialist groups and unions, and they want it to cover all of North America if it can. So they translated their founding document, which is still sort of in flux, right, because different groups that want to sign on are allowed to make edits that you know whatever would make them feel comfortable signing on to this um so it's a living document but i got a spanish translation of the most recent version of it and i figured i would present it to the zapatistas in Oventique just to let them know and see if they wanted to sign on to it so i asked the the women on the tour if they could like you know pass it along for me or whatever and they're like oh we'll take you to talk to the junta yeah, it's like no like, big deal Ooh. so we're like okay <laughs> and i my spanish was at an all-time low that day because i had had a cup of very strong hot chocolate after dinner <laughs> that kept me awake all night and i realized that sounds like a lie but uh it's really not 
It's really true, folks. She's got a very sensitive disposition. Um, yeah, you have to imagine, like, all of a sudden, the women are like, okay, the hunter will see you, and we go into this, you know, special building set off to the side, and uh, we end, we're sitting on benches, and there's a, de a table in front of us with um, everybody wearing masks, and I thought this was really awesome. It was one gentleman, and then it was four... Uh, Mostly women. Women. Um, yeah, and, and women, P.S., have a very uh, important role in the Zapatista towns. Most um, of the mural, not most of it, many of the murals were uh, were basically um, anti-patriarchal anti and up, like upholding the, uh, the struggle yeah. of women, which is really, really amazing, especially in that part of the world. Yeah, women's rights are a really important part of their uh, society. And there are like lots of, I've, I've read about all the different principles, like women have the right to divorce, women have the right to not marry at all, women have the right to have kids or not have kids. Um, and there were some cool there were some cool murals i think there was one saying that i saw a bunch of different places that translated basically to when women go forward men don't go back which is like a really nice refutation of the whole zero-sum game idea. Well, I mean, Chiapas is landlocked, so they, they probably don't know about lobsters there. Makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> Fair oh, enough. Uh, uh, so <laughs> we go to uh, sit with the junta, and um, it, was, it was vaguely intimidating, but they were really, really nice. And, um, you know, with our limited uh, Spanish abilities, you know, we're not the best, um, we were able to speak uh, with them for maybe, I'd say, like 10, 15 minutes, and... You know, basically, they um, were very hesitant to answer a lot of our questions yeah. when we were talking about yeah. how they relate to other movements like the Apo movement that was part of the Oaxaca insurrection uh, and uh, also what they thought of, say, AMLO coming in. What oh, they yeah. Thought the, oh, yeah. We asked the them what they thought about AMLO and they're like, we're not going to talk about that. Yeah. And I was like, what sort of connections, you know, have you tried to make with like Apo and other groups that like, we're not going to talk about that? And I get it. You know, obviously, they don't want. Uh, that information spread. That's their thing. And but we yeah. just met them. And we just met them. We right? had just yeah, met them. Exactly. So they looked at the document. Um, uh, I, a couple wait, wait, of wait. the women uh, took notes the entire time. Yeah. So I asked them if they'd heard of the DSA and they said no, because like, why would they? So I explained a little bit in my broken Spanish about what the DSA is. And I explained about the Libertarian Socialist Caucus within the DSA because that is probably the closest to their politics. And then I explained about the symbiosis document thing that I was presenting to them. And, you know, I read a little bit from it in Spanish and then I just gave it to them. I had to print out and they, they took a look. They took a ton of notes uh, and they they were really polite. They're like, uh, I don't think we want to join this necessarily, but th thanks. Thanks for letting us know. Yeah. They're and they, saying it's good to have information from the outside. Yeah, and they took a ton of notes, and now they know what the DSA is, or at least a really broken version of it that I was able to convey <laughs> in Espanol. And I told them that they have, you know, we haven't forgotten them, we haven't forgotten their struggle, yeah. and they have solidarity from us. And then we, and the last thing we left them with is that, um, you know, the, in the 1990s and into the early uh, 2000s, um, the Zapatistas were very much like in the eyes of the left. Uh, you know, very much. There was a lot of attention being paid to them. And we said that, you know, one thing that we can do is go back. Um, we told them we had a podcast and uh, that we would let folks know that they're still there and uh, that they're doing their thing um, so that uh, folks uh, don't forget about their uh, heroic struggles, even if they're kind of on the defensive now. Well, I also think it's important to note that like while they are autonomous, they are also uh, internationalist and they are hooked into struggles around the world. So when we were in Oventique, we saw a really cool mural that someone had painted uh, expressing solidarity with the Kurds in Rojava. Um, it was like some, it was really cool, right? Yeah. 
with some Zapatista women like dancing around a campfire with Kurds in Rojava. They are connected to the internet. They pay attention to what's going on in the world. They have a website. Um, I heard that there was a Black Lives Matter mural, but it must have been in a different town because we didn't see it there. Yeah, they're definitely internationalists. Um, and so they're having an encuentro uh, in December that uh, they've invited comrades from around the world to come to. So I think some of my comrades from the LSC are going to go to that. That's great. So you saw a lot of the natural and political beauty uh, in Chiapas, but you also mentioned you saw this um, this caravan of internally displaced people. Uh, it would be good if you talked a little bit, a bit about their story, um, especially since... So many people in the U.S. are horrified to see what's going on with the La the Central American caravan of people from Honduras who, who passed through Chiapas just a couple months ago and are now stuck in the Tijuana-San Diego border. Yeah, on the migrant caravan that's all over Fox News and other outlets, uh, this just disgusting, um, xenophobic, uh, politically driven, cynical, uh, cynical attempt to try to get Americans um, scared of brown people as though it were some invasion. Um, we were certainly aware that that was happening on the trip and we were following it. The sense that we got from our comrades in um, Mexico City was that, um, you know, Mexico is, again, a giant country. We uh, talked about, uh, Andy talked about this before. There's the north, there's the center, and the south. And the center tends to be, you know, very uh, much oriented towards Mexico City. It's kind of cosmopolitan, very you know, liberal and left. And then the South obviously has this um, tradition of struggle. So in a sense, they're more leftist, I suppose. But the North um, tends to be more like cowboy country. And uh, our friend was telling us that people are a lot more conservative up there. Apparently they're oriented towards the U.S. So apparently what happened is uh, when the caravan hit uh, the area around Mexico City, there was tremendous solidarity from the folks there and uh, they were brought food, they were given shelter, uh, they were brought water and all the things they needed and a pretty large outpouring of support. But when that migrant caravan that we've heard so much about ended up in the north, um, a Mexican friend of ours told us that uh, they had actually been attacked by, um, by Mexican people, Mexican civilians. Um, I, apparently there's a thing called Mexicanos uh, con Trump um, and so in the north, uh, they were violently against this caravan and actually physically attacked them before the United States uh, tear gassed uh, and beat a whole bunch of women and children and uh, military aged men. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the, the, the political context of this uh, this larger caravan. But then the it didn't strike us at the time when we were walking, trudging up this mountain, you know, what that caravan we saw meant, that smaller caravan in Chiapas. But then, uh, you know, we did a little research on it and it goes to show really um, what the Zapatistas and the rest of the indigenous communities there um, have fought against and uh, what they continue to fight against. Yeah. So once we were in San Cristobal, we saw some notices up around town and it said Solidaridad con los desplazados de Java Hebal. Probably butchering that pronunciation. Java Hebal is the uh, town. Yeah. So I'm translating it. So the social community of Chavajebal in the municipality of El Bosque in the region of Los Altos de Chiapas, Mexico, uh, they began to be displaced by force on the 7th of November of 2018 at 7 p.m. at night. Um, there are approximately 1,764 people Jeez. in this vulnerable situation who need humanitarian attention. 
um, to guarantee their integrity and safety uh, and their return to their homes in conditions of security. Yeah, so what we saw was a um, part of a smaller caravan that was going from this town of displaced people to the capital of uh, Tuxla in order to go protest the government because evidently there are right-wing paramilitaries over there, surprise, surprise, who have connection to the state. And, and also, to organize crime. And organize crime and capital in general. And a uh, fight broke out. Uh, apparently the paramilitaries, maybe they were ordered to do so. Maybe it just happened. But um, they ended up uh, killing uh, three people in this town and um, injuring a whole bunch of uh, other ones. And the people in the town had previously fought back by breaking all of their comrades out of prison. Uh, but then again were attacked by the paramilitaries. And they were basically told by the state and uh, by these um, masked uh, thugs with guns uh, that they weren't welcome in their own town anymore. Yeah. Oh, and, okay, uh, so we got to be careful. We don't know exactly what the connection is with the state yeah. at this point in time, but it is a little suspicious. And we know that the state has been involved in things like this in the past. Yeah, I am uh, suspicious that the state had some involvement because I saw, you know, it's hard to see what power is, right? Power tends to be diffused. But when we were walking by that caravan in the middle of the night there, uh, there were a lot of police. There were municipal police. Then there were the federales who were notoriously corrupt, like the other police. But then all of a sudden, I think we saw um, state power uh, arrive. There was a giant, um, giant escalade, uh, and it pulled up. No lights or anything, and four men with... Uh, bulletproof vests but wearing suits uh got out of the oh the fucking white shirts yeah seriously they i think they i'm sure they were connected to some sort of federal i don't know repressive apparatus and they came out and they were the ones that started getting all the cops in line and surrounding this caravan obviously ready to use force if uh, anything happened and just looking at these four men um i could tell that they were the, the real power behind this so whether they were they had ordered the paramilitaries to get these people out because their town was sitting sitting on some resource that capital or the state wanted or whether they were now just you know in charge of I don't know, taking this surplus population and making sure they didn't cause too much trouble. Uh, those four gentlemen uh, were the state. They were power. And it was they were very intimidating. It was very, very frightening. And unlike our cop, I don't think they were there to escort them safely to their destination. No, and I'm sure there were lots of weapons in that vehicle. So, But just to speak to the giving character of people in Chiapas and San Cristobal, um, the bottom part of this notice said... Um, Urgent help is needed for these displaced families. It had a list of items that they really need, mostly staples like corn and beans and salt and sugar. And it had the address of one, two, three, four, five, six centros de acopio in San Cristobal alone where people could bring donations for them. So the struggle continues, folks, and uh, the Zapatistas are not paranoid. Um, there still is a low-level sort of uh, insurgent um, state action going on in Chiapas. I just want to close it out on the question to you about your experience as tourists in Chiapas, seeing uh, the struggles of people there. Um, how do you walk this line? I mean, obviously, Zapaturismo has been a term since the 90s. A lot of Mexican people went to Chiapas to see what was going on there. And a lot of the uh, businesses in San Cristobal sell Zapatista merchandise. Right. So. So it's not necessarily a wrong thing to do, but I'm just wondering what kind of conflicts that brings up and how you navigate them. 
It was interesting because when we were in Oaxaca the year before, we saw um, remnants of the struggle there. There were in the main Zocalo uh, in Oaxaca del Juarez, there were um, red and black banners everywhere. And you could see the signs of the insurrection that happened there uh, about a decade ago. But um, yeah, it, that's a really, really good question. Um, <clears throat> I think if you look, and again, this will take a much deeper analysis, but from what I've seen, the uh, economy of Chiapas, uh, it has been an extractive one, uh, but more like the rest of the world, uh, it is becoming more and more service oriented. So uh, tourism is becoming more and more of a uh, factor economically there. Uh, these indigenous folks, Andy, that you mentioned and that Jamie and I saw recently um, have lost their land because of the price of corn from NAFTA or because of state violence. And uh, one of the only ways that they can actually you know, maintain themselves in their communities is by selling handicrafts uh, to tourists. Now, we have the opportunity, we have the luck, the privilege, I should say, to be able to go and um, uh, if you were to put the baddest spin on it, go kind of like, you know, revolutionary tourism and go gawk it like, uh, you know, some exciting somebody, somebody else's exciting struggle while you go home safely to, you know, the United States and go on and live your life. Um, I think that um, it's a the only thing that makes me kind of uh, not that cynical about it is that when we were accepted by the junta and when we were taken into Oventique, um, we did not get the sense that they felt like we were invaders or that we were, you know, being opportunistic about things. They were very, very happy to meet us. And I think that without a shift in social relations in general, by which I mean some sort of attack on the neoliberal and global capitalist structures that cause the sort of exploitation and domination that you see in Chiapas, that, um, you know, the, the most we can do is, um, is uh, live our lives. And if we have the opportunity to go um, experience these beautiful places and these beautiful people, and also infuse some of our um, aristocracy of labor, uh, first world money into it, then um, that's the world that we live in. Uh, that's that all makes a whole lot of sense. I just have maybe three thoughts to add because this is something that I think about quite a bit. Um, I think, first of all, um, they are very restrictive as to who they will let into their town. You know, most places in the world where tourists go, uh, those doors are just forced open by the market, but they are not desperate for us. They are not desperate for our money. They actually turned down the money that we tried to donate to them. You know, they are not overly reliant on tourists. It's um, it really if you want to talk about mutual aid, it really is mutual because they have something to give us and we have something to give them. And they I think if anything, they want to make sure that it's an equal exchange. And, and that's probably why they don't accept that much by way of donations. Um, that said, I think we do provide them a service beyond um, just giving them our money. You know, we communicate with them as leftists from another place. Um, they actually have an English program or a Spanish program that you can do in Oventique and stay there for about five days. Um, I didn't have time to do it this time, but I would love to do it yeah, another time where you can go and like help out around the farm and the community and learn Spanish and I thought about it a little bit and, you know, it, it brings a little bit of money in, but it also does something very smart, which is offer some measure of protection, right? right? Because the Mexican army used to invade their communities all the time. And I think they're a lot less likely to do that if they know there might be American tourists there. Uh, the last thing I would say is that 
they have something that we don't, you know, mm. like we have money mm. that we can offer to them, but they, I mean, they're, they're poor and they live very simply, but they are free in mm. a way that mm. we will probably not be within our lifetimes. Oof. So just the, I hope, I hope you're wrong. The ability yeah, to right. experience that and to even for a minute feel like you're connecting with an autonomous like actually existing socialist society is a gift that they can give back to us that's probably worth a lot more than whatever money we spent at their stores and just to close it out i would say that um you say really existing socialist society let's not uh over aggrandize uh you know what's happening in chiapas and with the zapatistas these are still relatively actually very poor by global standards uh, people who are doing their best to try to create a better world and a new world for themselves and um and to survive basically uh, yes, like there were other indigenous communities that chose to commit suicide rather than live under this colonial imperial rule so a hundred percent they correct. didn't have a lot of options yeah and i think that um the last thing i would say is that as long as um the zapatistas and groups like uh, them exist um, hopefully they'll be there when we in the, um, first world, I guess they call it, or the developed world finally get our fucking shit together and, um, stop the forces of capitalism and imperialism that have directly affected these people. And, uh, we hope someday that, that this division between, you know, people living in New York city with the money to just fly down to, uh, Mexico and, um, these indigenous people, uh, fighting a struggle down there. We hope those divisions, uh, will someday collapse and uh, we can unite with them uh, in order to make a, a better world for everyone. Hell yeah. Can I just tell one short whimsical story? So when we were in San Cristobal, um, our friend Boy Jamie, or BJ as we sometimes call him, uh, he went on a Tinder date. And how do we describe Boy Jamie? Girls like him. Fuck boy. G girls like him. He's a fuck boy. And he likes them back. He's a fuck boy. And that's that's not nice we after love he said him. we could tell we his story. Love him. He's a great he's guy. Great. He's, he is a boy who likes to fuck. He's got a lot of feelings. <laughs> he is got a big heart. He's a wonderful guy. And girls like him. So <laughs> he's got those wonderful eyelashes. He's even those, as a man, I can appreciate those, those, those beautiful big long eyelashes, eyelashes, man. Eyelashes. Even underneath his mm. glasses, they just mm. whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. with that long hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In another life, maybe it would have worked out with uh, not girl Jamie, but boy Jamie. But let's, anyways, let, go on. Go let's on. not objectify our friend too much. <laughs> you're right. You're right. So anyway, he went on a Tinder date in San Cristobal, as he does, and met a really cool Mexican girl from San Cristobal who then decided to come with us to our next stop, which was Isla Holbosch. And she's, she's real cool. She's an artist. She's, uh, her name's Erica. She's got some cool tattoos. I don't even, I don't really know that much about her, but we had a super fun time in Isla Holbosch. And he just sent me some drawings that she did after being inspired by our trip. And they're really fucking cool. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Like we, okay, so we all did acid on Isla Holbosch and went to the bay where you can see the bioluminescent plankton in the water. And what that means is you go in the water and every time you move, there's like green sparkles everywhere. That was pretty darn cool. And I was like, man, I wonder, I wonder what Erica thinks of us. Oh, we all became mapaches, raccoons, because we saw raccoons everywhere mapache. in uh, Isla Holbosch. I saw like, a mapache too. Running around on the beach. I uh, remember I told you I had a thing about mapaches. Mm -hmm. Mapaches were actually the uh, nickname that the 
uh, capitalist right-wing forces gave to themselves in the 1930s when mm. they created their paramilitary organization to uh, expropriate the land of indigenous people. So wow. maybe your mapaches aren't all that fucking great after or all. Or maybe they appropriated mapaches in a way that was very inappropriate. And Don't we are appropriate taking it back. mapache culture. Have you ever seen a mapache? They are fucking anarchists. They're little bandits. They got the masks on. They're, they're like Antifa. They're like the black buck. They're definitely Zero's era crime think traveler anarchists, dumpster divers. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw one with a bandana. Yeah, and a banjo. Right. Yeah, I, I heard yeah. one of them talking about dialectics. I think it might have been Slovo Zizek. Oh, yeah. Zizek is also a raccoon man. But I was like, man, I wonder what Erica thinks of us like fucking crazy ass gringos. And uh, I just got he he just texted me some art that she made after being inspired by our trip. And it is very weird and lovely. So I guess that should uh, answer our question. Maybe we did give a little back. (laughs) Maybe we did. I think she had a fun time. Hell yeah. So this didn't end like E2 Mama Tambien with a, a homoerotic threesome. <laughs> it didn't. I'm not, not saying yeah. shit. Es un secreto. But uh, we might have a new holiday called Cinco de Sexo. <laughs> <laughs> so to wrap it up, folks, it was a vacational contrast. Gracias, patrones. I'm really tempted to end this with holiday in Cambodia, but that would be <laughs> inappropriate for a number of reasons. Use your best judgment. Yeah. Maybe there's a radio edit of it. <laughs> 